Book 2, Sections 8-13 through 13 of Against Appian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Tabus. Against Appian by Flavius Josephus. Translated by William Whiston. Book 2, Sections 8-13. through 13. He adds another Grecian fable in order to reproach us in reply to which it would be enough to say that they who presume to speak about divine worship ought not to be ignorant of this plain truth, that it is a degree of less impurity to pass through temples than to forge wicked calumnities of its priests. Now such men as he are more zealous to, to justify a sacrilegious king than to write what is just and what is true about us and about our temple. For when they are desirous of gratifying Antiochus, and of concealing that perfidiousness and sacrilege which he was guilty of, with regard to our nation, when he wanted money, they endeavor to disgrace us, and tell lies even relating to futurities. Appian becomes other men's prophet upon this occasion, and says that, Antiochus found in our temple a bed and a man lying upon it, with a small table before him, full of dainties from the fishes of the sea, and the fowls of the dry land, that this man was amazed at these dainties thus set before him, that he immediately adored the king upon his coming in, as hoping he would afford him all possible assistance, that he fell down upon his knees and stretched out to him his right hand, and begged to be released, and that when the king bid him sit down to tell him who he was, and why he dwelt there, and what was the meaning of those various sorts of food that were set before him? The man made a lamentable complaint, and with sighs and tears in his eyes gave him this account of the distress he was in, and said that he was a Greek, and that he went over this province in order to get his living, and that he was seized upon by foreigners on a sudden, and brought to this temple, and shut up therein, and was seen by nobody, but was fattened by these curious provisions thus set before him and that truly at the first such unexpected advantages seemed to him a matter of great joy, that after a while they brought a suspicion him, and at length astonishment what their meaning should be, and at last he inquired of the servants that came to him, and was by them informed that it was in order to be the fulfilling of a law of the Jews, which they must not tell him that he was thus fed, and they did the same at a set time every year that they used to catch a Greek foreigner, and fat him thus up every year, and then lead him to a certain wood, and kill him, and sacrifice with their accustomed solemnities, and taste of his entrails, and take an oath upon this sacrificing a Greek, that they would ever be at enmity with the Greeks, and that then they threw the remaining parts of the miserable wretch into a certain pit. Appian adds further that, the man said there were but a few days come ere he was to be slain, and implored of Antiochus that, out of the reverence he bore to the Grecian gods, he would disappoint the snares of the Jews laid for his blood, and would deliver him from the miseries with which he was encompassed. Now this is such a most tragical fable, as is full of nothing but cruelty and impudence, Yet it does not excuse Antiochus of his sacrilegious attempt, as those who write it in his vindication are willing to suppose. 
for he could not presume beforehand that he should meet with any such thing coming into the temple, but must have found it unexpectedly. He was therefore still an impious person, and was given to unlawful pleasures, and had no regard to God in his actions. But as for Appian, he hath done whatever his extravagant love of lying hath dictated to him as it is his most easy to discover by a consideration of his writings, for the difference of our laws is known not to regard the Grecians only, but they are principally opposite to the Egyptians, and to some other nations also, for while it so falls out that men of all countries come sometimes and sojourn among us, how comes it about that we take an oath and conspire only against the Grecians? that by the effusion of their blood also? Or how is it possible that all the Jews should get together to these sacrifices, and the entrails of one man should be sufficient for so many thousands to taste of them, as Appian pretends? Or why did not the king carry this man, whoever he was, and whatever was his name, which is not set down in Appian's book, with great pomp back to his own country, when he might thereby been esteemed as a religious person himself, and a mighty lover of the Greeks, and might therefore have procured himself a great assistance from all men against that hatred the Jews bore to him. But I leave this matter, for the proper way of confuting fools is not to use bare words, but to appeal to the things themselves that make against them. Now then, all such as ever saw the construction of our temple, of which nature it was, know well enough how the purity of it was never to be profaned. For it had several courts encompassed with cloisters round about, and every one of which had by our law a peculiar degree of separation from the rest. Into the first court every body was allowed to go, even foreigners and none but women, during their courses were prohibited to pass through it. All the Jews went into the second court, as well as their wives, when they were free from all uncleanness. Into the third court went the Jewish men, when they were clean and purified. Into the fourth went the priests, having their sacerdotal garments. But for the most sacred place none went but the high priests, clothed in their peculiar garments. Now there is such a great caution used about these offices of religion, that the priests are appointed to go into the temple, but at certain hours. For in the morning, at the opening of the inner temple, those who are to officiate receive the sacrifices, as they do again at noon, till the doors are shut. Lastly, it is not so much as lawful to carry any vessel into the holy house, nor is there anything therein but the altar of incense, the table of shewbread, the censer, and the candlestick, which are all written in the law. For there is nothing further here, nor are there any mysteries performed that may not be spoken of, nor is there any feasting within this place. For what I have now said is publicly known, and supported by the testimony of the whole people, and their operations are very manifest, for although there be four courses of the priests, and every one of them have about five thousand men in them, yet do they officiate on certain days only, and when those days are over, other priests succeed in the performance of their sacrifices, and assemble together at midday, and receive the keys of the temple, and the vessels by tail, without any things relating to food or drink being carried into the temple. Nay, we are not allowed to offer such things at the altar, excepting what is prepared for the sacrifices.
What then can we say of Appian, but that he examined nothing that concerned these things, while still he uttered incredible words about them? But it is a great shame for a grammarian not to be able to write true history. Now, if he knew the purity of our temple, he hath entirely omitted to take notice of it. But he forges a story about the seizing of a Grecian, about ineffable food, about the most delicious preparation of dainties, and pretends that strangers could go into a place wherein to the noblest men among the Jews are not allowed to enter, unless they be priests. This, therefore, is the utmost degree of impiety, and a voluntary lie, in order to the delusion of those who will not examine into the truth of those matters, whereas such unspeakable mischiefs as are above related have been occasioned by such calumnities that are raised upon us. Nay, this miracle or piety derides us further, and adds the following pretended facts to his former fable. For he says that this man related how, while the Jews were once in a long war with the Idumeans, there came a man out of one of the cities of the Idumeans, who there had worshipped Apollo. This man, whose name is said to have been Zebedus, came to the Jews and promised that he would deliver Apollo, the god of Dora, into their hands, and that he would come to our temple, if they would all come up with him, and bring the whole multitude of the Jews with them, that Zebedus made him a certain wooden instrument, put it around about him, and set three rows of lamps therein, and walked after such a manner that he appeared to those that stood a great way off to be a kind of star, walking upon the earth, that the Jews were terribly affrighted at so surprising an appearance, and stood at quite a distance, and that Zebedus, while they continued so very quiet, went into the holy house, and carried off that golden head of an ass, for so facetiously does he write, and then went his way back again to Dora in great haste. And say to you so, sir, as I may reply, then does Appian load the ass that is himself, and lays on him a burden of fooleries and lies, for he writes of places that have no being, and not knowing the cities he speaks of, he changes their situation, for Idumea borders upon our country, and it is near Gaza, in which there is no such city as Dora, although there it be, if it were true, a city named Dora in Phoenicia, near Mark Carmel, but it is a four days' journey from Idumea. Now then, why does this man accuse us? Because we have not gods in common with other nations. If our fathers were so easily prevailed upon to have Apollo come to them, and thought they saw him walking upon the earth and the stars with him, for certainly those who have so many festivals wherein they light lamps must yet at this rate have never seen a candlestick. But it still seems that while Zabetus took his journey over the country, where were so many ten thousands of people, nobody met him. He also, it seems, even in a time of war, found the walls of Jerusalem destitute of guards. I omit the rest. Now the doors of the holy house were seventy cubits high and twenty cubits broad. They were all plated over with gold, and almost of solid gold itself, and there were no fewer than twenty men required to shut them every day, nor was it lawful ever to leave them open, though it seems that this lamp-bearer of ours opened them easily, or thought he opened them, as he thought he had the ass's head in his hand. 
whether therefore he returned to us again, or whether Appian took it and brought it into the temple again, that Antiochus might find it and afford a handle for a second fable of Appian's is uncertain. Appian also tells a false story when he mentions an oath of ours as if we, quote, swore by God, the maker of heaven and earth and sea, to bear no good will to any foreigner, and particularly to none of the Greeks, unquote. Now this liar ought to have said directly that we would bear no good will to any foreigner, and particularly to none of the Egyptians. For then his story about the oath would have squared with the rest of his original forgeries, in case our forefathers had been driven away by their kinsmen, the Egyptians, not on account of any wickedness they had been guilty of, but on account of the calamities they were under. For as to the Grecians, we were rather remote from them in place, than different from them in our institutions, insomuch that we have no enmity with them, nor any jealousy of them. On the contrary, it hath so happened that many of them have come over to our laws, and some of them have continued in their observation, although others of them had not the courage enough to persevere, and so departed from them again. Nor did anybody ever hear this oath swore by us. Appian, it seems, was the only person that heard it, for he indeed was the first composer of it. However, Appian deserves to be admired for the, his great prudence, as to what I am going to say, which is this, that there is a plain mark among us that we neither have just laws nor to worship God as we ought to, because we are not governors, but rather in subjection to Gentiles, sometimes to one nation, sometimes to another, and that our city hath been liable to several calamities, while their city Alexandria has been of old time an imperial city, and not used to be in subjection to the Romans. But now this man had better leave off this bragging, for everybody but himself would think Appian said what he hath said against himself. For there are very few nations that have had the good fortune to continue many generations in this principality. But still the mutations in human affairs have put them into subjection under others. And most nations have been often subdued and brought into subjection by others. Now for the Egyptians, perhaps they are the only nation that have had this extraordinary privilege to have never served any of those monarchs who subdued Asia and Europe, and this on account, as they pretend, that the gods fled into their country and saved themselves by being changed into the shape of wild beasts. Whereas these Egyptians are the very people that appear to have never in all the past ages had one day of freedom, no, not so much as from their own lords. For I will not reproach them with relating the matter about how the Persians used them, and this not once only, but many times, when they laid their cities waste, demolished their temples, and cut the throats of those animals whom they esteemed to be gods. For it is not reasonable to imitate the clownish ignorance of Appian, who hath no regard for the misfortunes of the Athenians or of the Lacedaemonians, the latter of whom were styled by all men the most courageous and the former the most religious of the Grecians. I say nothing of such kings as have been famous for piety, particularly one of them whose name was Croesus, nor for the calamities he met with in his life. 
I say nothing of the citadel of Athens, of the temple of Ephesus, or that of Delphi, nor of the ten thousand others that have been burned down, while nobody cast reproaches on those that were sufferers, but on those that were the actors therein. But now we have met with Appian, an accuser of our nation, though one who still forgets the miseries of his own people, the Egyptians. But it is that Sesostrius, who was once celebrated as king of Egypt, that hath blinded him. Now, we will not brag of our kings David and Solomon, though they conquered many nations. Accordingly, we will let them alone." However, Appian is ignorant of what everybody knows, that the Egyptians were servants to the Persians, and afterwards to the Macedonians, when they were lords of Asia. And they were no better than slaves, while we have enjoyed liberty formerly. Nay, more than that, we have had the dominion of cities that lie around us. And this is nearly for a hundred and twenty years longer, until the Pompeius Magnus. And when all the kings everywhere were conquered by the Romans, our ancestors were the only people who continued to be esteemed in their confederates and friends on account of their fidelity to them. But, says Appian, we Jews have not had any wonderful men amongst us, not any inventors of arts, nor any eminent for wisdom. He then enumerates Socrates and Zeno, Cleothenes, and some others of this sort, and after all he adds himself to them, which is the most wonderful thing of all that he says and pronounces Alexandria to be happy, because it hath such a citizen as he in it. For he was the fittest man to be a witness to his own deserts, although he appeared to all others no better than a wicked mountebank of a corrupted life and ill discourses, on which account one may justly pity Alexandria, if it should value itself upon such a citizen as he is. But as to our own men, we have had those who have been deserving of commendation as any other whosoever, and such have perused our antiquities, cannot be ignorant of them. End of sections 8 through 13